Welcome to the Training Babble Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Schell, and I'm going to be your guide as we attempt to separate endurance fact from fiction by talking to the brightest minds in endurance sport. Everything from psychology, coaching, physiology, you name it. On this first episode, I sat down with Colby Pierce, one of the local legends here in Boulder, Colorado, because Colby has been around the sport for a long time and is never short on opinion. And the nice thing is, is that his opinion usually flies in the face of air quotes, conventional wisdom. Hope you enjoy. All right, I am sitting here with a local legend, Colby Pierce. Um, You've been around the cycling scene for quite a while. For people that maybe aren't that familiar with you, can you give us a quick synopsis of where you've been, where you're at now? Sure. Um, Started bike racing when I was 15, got struck by a bolt of lightning, metaphorically speaking, and decided that I was a bike racer. Uh, did a uh, start off with the Redzinger Mini Classic Series here in Colorado, which was based on the Coors Classic, um, and that was went home after the first race and shaved my legs and was like, I'm a bike racer now, and I've uh, been in the sport ever since. So, raced uh, air quotes pro um, in the U.S. for about 10 years. Uh, 2004 Olympic team for the points race on the track, raced track, mountain, cross, and road. Won some national championships on the track. Won some uh, World Cup medals. Uh, best I ever did at World Championships was sixth place in the points race. Did some six days with Daniel Holloway mostly and some other guys in Europe for about four years. Uh, that was a really cool experience. And um, let's see, was uh, proving myself to be the quasi-employable post-bike racer status after that. Worked for SRM for a year and a half. Worked for USA Cycling for a year and a half. Uh, worked for Garmin Sharp on their sports science, sports science team for a year. Uh, certified Steve Hogg bike fitter. Trained with Steve in 2012? Something like that. 11? I don't know. It was a long time ago. Uh, lived in Sydney for a month to do that. That was really cool. So what is the difference between, like I'm familiar with Fist, which is through Slow Twitch, I think, and mm-hmm. I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now. Uh, I believe that's Dan Enfield. Dan Enfield, right. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also familiar with like body, ge- beyond, bleh, body geometry through Specialized. So what's yep. the difference with Steve Hogg? So um, I think, well, Steve, we could probably draw a big line between Steve's fitting methods and most of the other major fitting schools out there uh, in the sense that most of them are really technology oriented as in they use a lot of technology during the fitting process. Uh, Steve is not opposed to using technology, but his system is really uh, probably more primarily based around analyzing and, and solving problems related to the function of the athlete. So, uh, and we don't necessarily use technology in the traditional sense or in the modern sense, I should say. Uh, the way a lot of other fitting fitting methodologies do. So, okay. Yeah. Got it. That's a big, broad explanation, but that's sort of it no. from a 10,000-mile view. Yeah, it's one of those things I was curious about because I had never heard the name, but some of the other ones are a little bit more prevalent. Yeah. Steve's got quite a following, actually. His website gets an insane amount of traffic. Um, he's be- He used to be based in Sydney. Um, and he's still in Australia now, but he, he used to write a lot of articles for Cycling News years ago, and solve a lot of problems, have a kind of Q&A session. And that's how I found him. Started reading his stuff and was really impressed by his methodology and his sort of method of looking at athletes um, and considering all different variables. And, and um, <coughs> excuse me, and I reached out to him about training with him and got a, a positive response. He'd actually watched me race the Sydney Track World Cup when I was there on the U.S. team uh, a few years prior and and invited me to come down for training, and I did that, and it turned out successful. So That's awesome. And yeah. so you said you spent a month there? Yeah, yeah. Your training is uh, three, three and a half weeks. So, yeah, you end up spending a month there by the time it's all said and done. And and the other thing that's a little bit unique about Steve's process is that it's not it's not pay your fee and get your cert. Uh, it is pass-fail. And there are people who have attempted training with him and not made it through the process. Uh, he He – He's very rigorous about whom he selects and allows that training. And I'm not trying to blow sunshine at my own skirt at all. <laughs> I, I think there are a lot of people who could do it, but it takes a particular mindset and a certain type of fitter who could successfully navigate that program. So, yeah, absolutely. 
practicing, you can edit whenever. Yeah, there's a. Yep. Yep. Cool. Um, all right. So you bike fit, but you also um, coach a bit as well, correct? Uh, a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are my. I like to say I have three jobs um, full time coach, full time fitter, and also got some many other projects, which at least add up to a job on top of that, including making track frames and some other stuff. So, oh, really? You make track frames? Yeah. Well, not make in the sense that I literally design, uh, construct them, but I do design the geometry for them. And my business partner, Rick, who and I, uh, we designed the frames, including the dropouts. Um, there's a prototype hanging on the wall behind you there. It's called 50.1 Racing. And, um, they're manufactured here in Colorado. The dropouts are made by OSI, which is out in Frederick, Colorado. And the frames are made for us by a guy named Matt Nunn, who is also in Frederick, um, which is just a few a uh, few kilometers from the velodrome, which is pretty cool. So That's crazy. I had no idea that you did yeah. that. So yeah. It's, cool. um, it's a project that I've been working on in the background for a few years, and it's kind of slowly gotten traction. And, and now we're starting to sell frames, and it's, it's cool. I haven't pushed it a lot. Um, but it's a neat project. I really enjoyed digging into geometry and examining a lot of the finer nuances of geometry and how they impact handling and weight distribution and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's sweet. So, um, so I imagine, so when did you, when did you first start racing bikes? How many uh, years ago? Uh, yeah, so it was 15, so I'm 47, so I don't know, whatever, 30 million years so, ago. Yeah, several <laughs> years ago. Right. Yeah. yeah, and just in my... I've known you for a few years now and in my interactions with you, I can, you've always got an opinion, I would say, <laughs> and, and you're never afraid to share it. And that's, that's my interest in, in talking today is that over those years, you've, you've kind of formulated that opinion based on your experiences and the things that you've found through trial and error. Mm -hmm. And those are the things you bring into bike fitting and coaching. Right. Um, and so just in some of our conversations, uh, some of those opinions have come out, and so I wanted to kind of explore that today. Cool. Uh, so I think the first thing, and, the, and this kind of started with an email uh, you had sent me when we were talking about some different topics that might be interesting, is one thing that immediately uh, stood out is that people are training with power incorrectly. Mm. So <laughs> why don't you Which uh, I think expand I on that a bit? Maybe rephrased as uh, suboptimally. Suboptimally. Probably initially said incorrectly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't like to tell people they're doing things wrong, you know. There's not – there's a poorly prescribed exercise, not really a wrong exercise, as an example, in the world of strength and conditioning, right? So um, I think that people get really confused uh, – in the sense that they believe on some level, their belief system tells them that power is an end goal. And of course, power is not an end goal. Power is just a neat gizmo, just like a lot of other gizmos that we have that helps us. It's a tool, it's a screwdriver. And there's nothing amazing about a screwdriver. I mean, to be fair, you know, to use a, an example of another tool, you could look at a floor pump and we have the Silka Super Pista, which I have right over here, which is really a work of art, but first, it does something. It pumps up bike tires. You can also buy a $20 pump at McGuckin's, which is our local hardware store for those of you who don't live here in Boulder, that pumps up tires, right? Now, the $20 one won't last as long and it won't be as enjoyable to use, but it still pumps up tires at least for a period of time until it breaks or falls apart. The $500 Super Pista will work, hopefully, for many decades and is beautiful. And every time you use it, you appreciate the precision of it, but they're still both tools. So, but owning a tool isn't the end goal of training or, or in the case of power, making more power isn't the end goal of training. And the, one of the discussions or the phrases that I despise the most that I heard a lot when I worked for Garmin Sharp in Europe is a very European phrase, Watts is Watts. And there's just no greater pile of bullshit than that. You know, roadies in particular tend to think about road racing and the end goal of road racing is being your FTP power and they visualize riding up Alpe d'Huez and racing to the top of a giant climb. And in reality, when we look in the Colorado race calendar or any regional calendar, there aren't that many races that end that way. And the other reality is that there are a lot of variables that go into how fast someone goes up that final climb besides FTP. So of course, making your threshold is important. And having a high FTP is a pre a predictor of race performance, but it's one of many. And, but it tends to be the one that everyone 
focuses on or that a lot of coaches and athletes focus on, I should say. So yeah, it's an ingredient in training. It's a goal of training. But what I found in my coaching is that frequently the athletes that I coach, when you really look at them holistically, you look at the entire athlete, meaning not just how the intervals they're doing, not only the on the bike nutrition they're using or not using, not only whether or not they're keto or, you know, low carb adapted or whatever fat adapted or these types of, of details. When you really look at the entire athlete, meaning how do they walk through life? How do they deal with their emotional problems? What are their relationships like? What kind of childhood trauma are they taking? What are their sleep habits like? Are they truly willing and able to turn inwards and look at their own shadow? When you look at an athlete from this macro perspective, you begin to understand that some athletes rate limiting factors really have nothing to do with their training on the bike. And as coaches, I think one of our most important things is to look at an athlete's rate limiting factor. That's ultimately what you're doing that right. And, and <clears throat> it's really easy to assume that an athlete's rate limiting factor is on the bike, but Frequently, that's not the case. And so what you do when you have an athlete whose rate limiting factor is off the bike, you need to write training that is, we'll say, somewhat benign, meaning you still want them to train. You need to give them workouts. That's part of your job as a coach is to prescribe workouts. But you need to do it in a way that allows them to accomplish something on the bike but not dig so deep that they're compromising their ability to really make forward progress in their rate limiting factor, whatever that may be. And for some athletes, that can be as simple as hydration. It could be as simple as life habits. It could be as simple as parasympathetic, sympathetic balance, right? Uh, which is a huge topic and can have wide ranging implications. But that can be the rate limiting factor of many athletes' performances, especially when you look at the general makeup, the kind of tendencies that most uh, cyclists have or athletes have, elite athletes have. They tend to be type A. They tend to be go, go, go. And, you know, we live in the U.S., so the Western mentality is, in general, if some is good, more is better. And here's another concept that I'll bring into that is the concept of extremism. Same basic idea. We think about, okay, what is road cycling, the essence of road cycling? A lot of people think, well, it is – Jeremy Thomas or Chris Froome racing to the top of Alpe d'Huez, right? Or it is Chloe Digard owen winning four out of four stages at the Colorado Classic this year and just smashing everybody, riding away solo from the field multiple times, which was pretty ridiculously impressive, by the way. Um, and, okay, that's one aspect of cycling, but these athletes, Chloe and Chris Froome or, you know, whoever – um, Alaphilippe, these people are paid to ride their bikes and they are by definition already extreme, not even in their behavior. Most of the time, like Mike Creed said, he didn't choose cycling. Cycling chose him, right? Why? Because he got on a bike at a very young age and realized how ridiculously good he was at it. And it got him as far as it got him in the sport. But all the, all the athletes at the Tour de France level or 99 point whatever percent of them we're in that same position where cycling basically picked them. They fell into the sport and they were so ridiculously good at it that they could handle the extreme lifestyle of cycling already just by blind luck or DNA distribution or shotgun or however you want to phrase it, right? Whether it was manifest destiny or blind luck. You can look at it either way, but it's really the same concept, which is Greg Van Avermaet can handle an insane amount of training volume and racing load that I probably couldn't handle, I would break down. And I was a world level athlete, but I'm not at Greg's level. That guy's a machine. And you can see it not only in his race performances, but in his the training load he must maintain to be able to handle that and then a race all year long throughout the Pro Tour calendar. That's that's the one percent of one percent, right? So when we coach an athlete who is a Masters racer or uh, just a cat three who wants to win state championships, you know, or get his upgrade or whatever, or, or a woman who wants to learn how to sprint better and win premiums and local criteriums. As an example, these athletes, of course, we all look towards 
the Greg Van Avermaet's and the Chloe's, the Chloe Dygert Owens for inspiration. And we, we aspire to do what they do on some level, but the fact is we never will because of two basic factors. One, they're being paid to do what they do so they can arrange their entire lives around that, that project. But two is they're already, they've already self-selected to be in a special category of human where they can handle more extremes. For the majority of our athletes, learning to walk the middle path, to adopt and embrace the woo way will gain far better results in sport and in happiness and in life and satisfaction with, with your, your journey in sport. That'll be far better off. And so what I see is athletes trying to be extreme like pros. They're trying to do these super hard rides with ridiculous average powers and KJs, or they're always searching for the next whatever extreme, you know, I'm going to go keto for six months and lose, you know, another five kilos of, of weight or something. And man, that nearly always backward backfires, right? Extremes rarely work out. If some is good, more is not necessarily better. <laughs> not for most of us. And again, I include myself in that category because I trained, I tried my own version of extremes. And this is something where I've, as you said, you know, I've got 30 whatever years in the sport. I tried my own extremes for a long time in many ways. And there were seasons where I took an extreme approach and it worked out pretty well. And then there were lots of other ones where I tried an extreme approach and man, I just fell on my face. Right. So. So, so getting back to power, people are, yep. if people are training suboptimally, mm. I guess let, let, let's start by how, how are most people training? How are most coaches prescribing a power-based workout? Well, and how could it be better? Right. Great. So simple. I mean, okay, you've got your local 20-minute hill, and your athlete, uh, you're giving your athlete intervals right? Presumably on hard days to, to gain ground and make themselves better. And this is a really simple methodology that I think many coaches use. They look at a power curve, they look at historical performances of an athlete, and they predict what power that athlete will, should, quote, do, right? Um, and they tell them, today, I would like you to aim for 350 to 360 watts for your five by three or four by four or five, four by five VO twos or whatever you're doing, or maybe it's your three by twenties if they're faster athlete. In my opinion, the optimal, the more optimal way to train an athlete is to use power as a tool and a feedback tool and to see what happens on the day. The athlete fundamentally what we're doing when we're using power as one data point, and that is your body's output. Then we're using heart rate as your body's response to load. And then we have a third data point. The third data point is the most important data point. It's perceived exertion. That is the most important data point for an athlete to understand or to use wordplay for a moment, to overstand, to integrate because when you are 80 miles into a 90 mile road race and you've been in a breakaway for 12 miles and you're approaching the line and you've got a 500 meter long roller and some guy hits you out of the back of the break and attacks in that second, it doesn't matter how many kilojoules you've done. It doesn't matter how many minutes in zone four, five, and six you've got in your legs. It doesn't really like nothing matters other than the split second decision do I have what it takes to follow this rider or not? And that decision comes down to confidence in yourself as an athlete, one. And two, the knowledge you have, the internal knowledge of your own strengths and weaknesses. How hot have you been running your engine for the last 80 miles? How deep have you gone? How many bullets have you got left? And no power meter can or should answer that question. And I know there are athletes who want that answer on a screen. And we and there are people who are gonna try to model that to death. And there are there there are engineers right now working on solutions to come up with FRC, you know, functional reserve capacity or W prime or whatever terminology you want to use for it. Basically the number of bullets you have left, theoretically the number of minutes or KJs or the pile, the bathtub of work you have above threshold in any given race day. 
there are, uh, there are engineers working on a way to model that and then display it on a head unit so that you can theoretically say you've got two bullets left. And I can't think of anything worse to give an athlete as a tool because, okay, let's back out for a second. This, this is the problem. <laughs> the fundamental problem is we've got these gizmos and these, these gadgets, these power meters and heart rate monitors. These are tools that we're using. They're screwdrivers or they're floor pumps that we want to use to help us to our end goal. What is our end goal? Our end goal is not power. It's not to make more power. It's competitively, it's to win races. But let's think bigger than that. What is the end goal of any athlete or what, quote, should it be, which is a word I really don't like and use very often? Because really, when you think about it, there is no would, could, or should. There never is. But <laughs> what, how, what is an optimal way for an athlete to practice sport? What are the ideal goals? My take as a coach, my philosophy as a coach, is there are two things that I want athletes to do. One, I want them to achieve flow state. I want them to enable or have on command to be able to drop into flow state not just in sport, but in life. Sport is practice for life. Life is about being a conduit. And how do you, why would you be a conduit? What are you being a conduit of? You're being a conduit of, we could call it lots of things. Source, God, primal energy, chi, life force, right? So what are you, what are you conduiting? You are shining. You are becoming the best possible you. God is a novelty generator. Everyone is perfectly imperfect in their own way. So when you practice sport, all you're doing is trying to shine. You're trying to bring out your best version of you, whatever that is, right? Some people go into a yoga class and they see the super ectomorphic, you know, amazingly skinny, beautiful woman doing the perfect down dog or the perfect trigonasana, and they go, wow. And maybe that person is not so flexible and not quite so gumby, a little more brick, a little less gumby, right? But they go to yoga class not to emulate or become this ectomorphic woman. What they, their goal in yoga class is simply to become the best that they can become at that task. So you're, you're, you're digging deep into your own layers to enable your best self to come forward. That's what sport is about. And so when you're look, so this goes back to, I'll use Mike Creed as an example again. Years ago, Creed raced U23 Worlds. And this was in the relatively early day of power meters, case of power meters. I don't remember what year this was, maybe 99, 2000, somewhere in there. He was a young, young cat. And he had in his head that he was going to race at a certain power band given a range by his coach or by himself or I'm not sure if he figured it out or what but it was you know 360 to 370 watts and he raced the time trial and stayed right in that power range the entire time and for the first half of the TT he was convinced he was going to smash it because that power band felt very achievable that range felt very doable as he got closer to the line he realized how what a mistake he'd made right why because he probably could have actually ridden much faster that day, right. but he was governing himself. What was the error? The error was he relied on technology to tell him an answer. I'm going to tell you this right now. Here's one of those opinions you were looking for. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> technology always fails us eventually. Every time. Everything we make that's technological breaks. There's this thing called entropy, and technology will always deceive us in some form. It just does. You can count on it. Just like the sun comes up. Eventually it will break. It will give us the wrong number. It will fail. The battery will run out. The cord will get lost. It'll get broken. It just happens. So when you become dependent on technology, you're setting yourself up for failure, first of all. It's a fool's errand. But you're relying on an external source of validation. That's really what we're getting at. I want people to look within, to know within, to understand themselves so they can become the best athlete that they were meant to be walk through the world and show your power be the best cyclist you can be and how you do that is to achieve flow state as often as possible doesn't matter if it's an easy ride or a super hard road race or a time trial same goal okay. 
So how do you kind of thinking about that and thinking about technology and software? A lot of what's available out there right now, there, there's definitely a trend towards structure. Of course. And structure that can control a smart trainer that will show you different colors as you're watching it riding on your uh, <laughs> uh very animated um <laughs> you can watch it on your screen as you're down in your pain cave and it's right. going to light up different colors based on how close you are to the target yep what do you think is the impact i mean we have already had a little bit of a taste of that but yeah what kind of impact is that having on athletes and and you're a coach so have yeah. you seen it firsthand yeah of course um i mean so as an athlete <clears throat> in particular someone who's young to cycling i mean Again, I'm not bashing these tools. I don't think they're not useful. They are. Screwdrivers are useful, right? Screwdrivers are useful. Floor pumps are useful. <laughs> I like to have air in my tires. <laughs> they work better with air in them. They're pneumatic devices. So power meters are very useful devices. I mean, I, I've been on power since 1995. I think Vodders and I were the third people in the U.S. to get SRMs after Greg Lamond. So I've been on power since the dawn of time. Uh, but... And, and I still prefer to ride with a power meter even today. I just like seeing the numbers, even if I'm not, I've raced three times this year. I'm not racing my bike a lot. That's okay. I still enjoy seeing power and seeing those numbers. So they're useful to see those numbers. Heart rate is a useful metric to track for sure, as is KJ's and all the associated metrics. Um, but the problem comes when you have a young cyclist. And I mean, by that, I mean someone who is young to the sport of cycling they come into the sport and they begin to uh, use this technology and they see what they see the numbers on the screen they see the power they see the intensity graph or the the neat colored bars and what they're not seeing is that that's a proxy for what's really happening in your body they're not necessarily learning that essential core lesson what are the fundamentals of cycling if you want to learn about this read the Rider by Tim Crabbe, right? Great book, vintage cycling book about what the essence of the sport is, what the core of the sport is. This is what cycling is at its fundamental level. You know, road cycling is about getting an aero position. It's about, because when you fit someone on a bike, you have to balance the physiology of the rider on one side with the demands of the event on the other. And in road racing, demands of the event are aerodynamics. It's part of the demands of the event. If you're not aero, you're going to not go very fast anytime aerodynamics are involved, which in a road race is pretty frequently. So when we, when we balance those demands... we end up with a result of a fit and part of the demands of road racing is to horizontalize the torso. So core to the sport, what are the basic demands? You have to be able to make power with both legs evenly with a still and anchored pelvis. You have to be able to ride with a horizontal torso to be arrow during higher speed sections of the course. And you have to know your own internal limits, how much energy you have left and how hot you can run the engine over a particular moment of the course, whether you can extend way beyond FTP for 35 or 40 seconds to bridge a critical gap to make it to the race winning breakaway, for example. And in those moments, that's where you have to know yourself because parameters can't right now, they can't tell us the answer to that question. I'm sure people are going to model the living bejesus out of it and try to get closer and closer because they really want to quantify that number. I have no interest in quantifying that data. Why? Because there's always going to be a higher level of data, which is the human computer, the one in your brain that never fails until the day you die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so aside from just the having that target to chase and the, uh, the impact that that has on <coughs> lack of fill, mm. what about just being able to ride your bike? Do you see an impact with people who are riding indoors all the time and yeah. then actually get outside? What, yeah. what kind of impact does that have? Yeah. I mean, again, uh, you know, and just to reverse for a moment, not to completely bash structured workouts. I mean, uh, those do have value. They can teach a cyclist. They can give someone structure when they need structure. They can push someone to, on a day where they need motivation to do intervals, they can do that. 
you know, you can do a train road workout, for example, or whatever, whatever pre loaded format of workout that's got intensity involved, those can be very constructive forms of training. But there are a lot of problems um, that are pervasive in the sport right now. One is that road racing is, look, I'm going to be brutally honest here. Road racing is dying. It is dying in the U.S. and it's dying in Colorado. And it's really sad to see. Uh, I don't mean any disrespect to any promoters who are still out there doing their jobs. Being a race promoter is a hard job. It's a thankless job in most cases. I don't mean any disrespect to anyone who loves road racing and still does it, but man, the numbers are just declining and it's sad to see. And there are several reasons for that. One is, in my opinion, and I'm not a race promoter, this is just what I've observed. There's event saturation between road races and criteriums and time trials and triathlons and fun rides and fondos and 5Ks and weird, what's that thing we have at the Boulder Res where people get to make their own vehicles and pedal across, <laughs> what is that thing called? Kinetics. Yeah, that one. <laughs> you know, I mean, and then we have, <clears throat> you know, charity runs and, you know, farmer's markets and everything. And then we just have 8 billion people on this planet. Roads everywhere. This isn't just on the front range in Colorado. Roads everywhere. I have clients who live all over the states and in other parts of the world Roads are just more crowded, except in a few places that I'm not going to name on this podcast because everyone's going to move there. And so people are riding road less, which which has led to a rise of gravel bikes and off-road bikes and all road bikes and all that stuff. And road racing is happening less. But also in the winter, people are – now there's this proliferation, pro, proliferation of – indoor training and virtual training and virtual universes and Zwift and things like this where you can race against people. And therein lies the problem. <clears throat> so <clears throat> there is a, there's a certain rhythm to everything, to life, to sport. And there should be, there's that word again, there should be a rhythm to sport. That rhythm is related to something called seasons. <laughs> And when you have winter, when you live in a climate with winter, you should respect winter, meaning <laughs> your energy changes during winter. Your biological clock is different in winter. Your diet should and normally does change in winter. But we have confounding variables. We have things like Costco now where you can get strawberries year-round. That's not normal. You don't really eat fruit in the winter, right? Why? Because it shouldn't be growing in the winter. Not where you live anyway. Right. So when people train indoors, here, here's the problem. One, they're doing the same thing year-round. And two, they get bored because riding indoors is boring. Well, not rocket science. No kidding. So what do you do? You start riding pre-populated workouts from Zwift or Trainer Road or any other platform, and I'm not trying to bang on those guys at all. I think they make a lot of good products, and they do, they do a lot of cool stuff. But when people use those types of platforms year-round and they end up riding at race intensity year-round, it causes problems. Okay, what are the problems it causes? Well, acutely, there's a good chance you're going to get some mineral depletion because you're sweating indoors profusely all the time, even with a fan. And I'm a fan of sweat rate and I'm a fan of farm for red saunas, but you got to replace your minerals carefully. And a lot of people probably aren't remineralizing in the right way. So that leads to an extra consumption of sugary sports drinks, which can, in extreme cases, bring about adult onset diabetes or pre-diabetes. A lot of endurance athletes are probably in this category, even though they don't know it because they're super carb dependent and they're drinking so much sugar. And there's a huge problem with health food in the industry, uh, endurance sports industry. Maybe we can side note that and come back to it. Enormous amount of hypocrisy there. We'll get into that if you want. So... You're training indoors, but the other problem is it doesn't respect the normal cycle of what makes for a healthy cyclist. I mean, how do you think Sean Kelly survived so many years racing so many hard races as a world-level professional rider and had such success? Well, Sean Kelly did things like he would have 90, 80, 90, 100 race starts a year in Europe, but then he would go home and not touch his bike for four or six weeks. And then he would work on the farm and he would take a rest period. And then after that long break, he 
he would start with very easy base miles and kilometers, and then he would probably do some sort of gym routine, which in Sean Kelly world was probably lifting bales of hay or something. This is how old school cycling pros trained. When they first got on the bike, they did eight or 10 or 12 weeks of literally 39, 19 flat roads, 100 RPM, long distance rides until they built up their body to be able to handle the basic demands of the sport before they started adding intensity. And by the time you did all that, you had a very, a different layout of macro cycles in the yearly, in the, in the 12 month cycle. When people train year round and they ride indoors in the trainer and they end up doing race efforts because they're bored, this destroys this entire paradigm. And going back to my comment a few, few moments, moments ago, what doesn't work, extremes don't work. And what's extreme? It's racing criteriums and road races all spring and summer and then getting antsy and not taking much of a fall break and either racing cyclocross or still riding your road bike and then getting on the trainer all year and doing basically what are race simulations indoors on a trainer. And all these fixed gear, fixed uh, direct drive trainers lock the bike in place. So as a fitter, I've actually started to see athletes having, I don't, I don't have a name for it yet. It could be trainer syndrome, <laughs> but we get this series of problems with an athlete, extra tight hips, uh, chronic numbness in the hands and crotch and they come to me and they wonder why their crotch is going numb well they're literally they're sitting on a trainer for two hours a day i mean come on like at least on the road you're sitting you're standing you've got more the 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 trainer locks the bike into exactly the same place and just to continue with this rant for a moment <laughs> if i may okay here's the thing that i think a lot of cyclists don't really get i don't even think a lot of bike fitters understand this from what i can tell and i that, that sounds like a, it's kind of an asshole comment, but anyway, I'll just keep going. So of all the repetitive endurance aerobic sports, let's, let's get an idea of what I'm talking about. We've got running trail, run, it could be trail running, street running, marathon running, uh, track running. We've got rowing, cross country skiing, you know, whether it's skating or classic style, um, what else do we have swimming? Then we've got cycling. We've got some other ones that we could throw in there that are similar. So repetitive endurance aerobic sports. Of all of those sports together, cycling is by far the best at screwing people up. Why? Because cycling is the one that, of all of them, locks you into the exact same motion for thousands of repetitions, even in a short 90-minute ride. You repeat exactly the same motion. In all the other sports, you've got at least some ability to, to move the posture, shift things, change a little bit, account for asymmetries, account for fatigue rate. And as I said before, God is a novelty generator. We are all perfectly imperfect in our own way. What does that mean? It means that everyone has inherent small asymmetries in their movement, their function, their flexibility, their nervous system. And so when you lock someone into the same motion thousands and thousands of times, those asymmetries grow over time, just like compound interest. The tiniest difference can, can over a long enough timeline will become problematic for everyone except the, the highest level compensator or the 0.1 of 0.1%. So for everyone else, eventually that becomes a problem. And cycling is also, you've got other problems with cycling. It's, you've got adaptive muscle shortening. It's a concentric load only. There's zero eccentric load in cycling. I mean, cycling, if we take the supposition or the assumption that in order to be a good cyclist, you must first be a good athlete. Well, cycling is one of the only sports that actually makes you, as you become a better and better cyclist, it makes you a worse athlete. And this is not hard to see. I mean, how many times have you heard your friends say like, man, I went up that flight of stairs. And I couldn't believe how sore I got. Or, you know, the first run you have your athlete do in the off season. And of course you, you tell them run 30 minutes maximum on soft surface, mostly uphill. And they go and they're like, oh, I accidentally ran for an hour and 48 minutes. And then they can't walk for three days. Right. Right. I mean, this is what cycling does to people. Cycling makes you a terrible athlete. So we have to counterbalance our cycling with other athletic activities strength and conditioning activities. We, we are, we must, it's not a, it's not a want to or should, it's a must uh, for everyone except that 
there are genetic freaks out there who don't really need that stuff, but not really relevant to our conversation. <laughs> because if you know them, you know them, and then it, there's no further conversation needed. For everyone else, we need other stuff. Right. So kind of moving on here. Um, Sorry, I went on like four different branches there. No, that's good. Everything's good. Uh, so talking about the health food, you said the health food industry, mm. or the, I guess air quotes, right? Health, right. health food. Right. Um, so that kind of ties into some other things I wanted to talk about too, mm-hmm. but yeah, let's, let's start there. Okay. And then we can move on to these other things that are related. Right. So, okay. It goes back to the, the general idea. Like, okay, you go to a cocktail party and you meet someone and, and you, you is in this case, you're an athlete or coach of athletes. Uh, either one and um you know what do you do oh i'm a i'm a whatever but yeah what's your pastime oh I, what's your what's your favorite fun activity oh i race bikes you do oh cool wow you must be so healthy that's the perception you're an endurance athlete you must be very healthy cycling's not a health driven sport and unfortunately for most people the way it's practiced if you move towards the woo way the middle way it can be a very important component of a healthy lifestyle and healthy life choices but the way most Westerners practice cycling, it is not really adding to your global health, your total sum health. So specifically as far as food goes, there's this massive, massive hypocrisy in endurance sports that drives me insane. So, okay, pop quiz, Dave. If I took you into a 7-Eleven and I had you pick out the five worst foods there, give me, give me three of them maybe that you might pick just off the top of your head. Um, probably some, foods you could eat. Yeah, probably some powdered donuts, a okay. Snickers bar, and a Mountain Dew. All right. Or, and what's the common denominator methodologically <laughs> in the making of all those foods? Like High fructose corn syrup. High fructose or corn sugar. syrup. Yep. Which is really a super refined sugar, right? Right. And all those foods are hyper refined. I mean, you walk through the forest, you walk through every forest in the world, you're not going to find any powdered donuts, right? You might find some various forms of meat that are still in living animals. You might find some vegetables if you came upon a farm or some mushrooms under a tree. So you're going to find food. You're going to find edible food in nature. But so this is, this is the dictum of any health diet. One of the basic things they'll say is avoid refined foods. The more processed and refined a food is, the worse it is for you in theory. That's a, that's a really good general guiding concept for any diet that's worth anything. And you can find that in most diets, really, that are, that are reasonable. Stay away from refined and processed foods. Well, guess what? We eat and we justify eating, we as a group of cyclists and endurance athletes, and we eat with great regular, regularity. We consume with enormous frequency, and we justify it in the name of performance. We eat refined foods and packaged foods and processed foods like nobody's business. And I will tell you right now, the difference between cake frosting and a gel is almost nothing except price <laughs> and maybe some amino acids. Like, that's it. It's cake frosting. You walked into a 7-Eleven and you ate cake frosting. You ate sugar. And, but, we, but when we put it in a gel packet and we consume it during criterium, it's, air quotes, healthy. Maybe because it has amino acids and some salt in it? This is this hypocrisy drives me nuts, and it's not just the gels; it's the gummy stick bar worm drops, whatever you want to call them, different forms, different shapes, which are basically gummy bears, right, with a sports label, and they cost about four times as much. And all the the bars, the bars are just it's just refined processed food, and any diet that's worth anything will tell you eat as many whole foods and natural food. That's the basics. I mean, whether or not we're disagreeing about plant-based or animal-based or whether it's keto or non-keto or whether it's Atkins or, you know, whatever, like any diet that is, when you get to the nuts and bolts of it, they'll always say, eat less refined foods, (laughs) eat less processed foods, less packaged foods. Right. Right. So this bothers me. And Athletes ask me all the time, what should I be eating on the bike? And my answer is almost always the same. Have you read Alan Lim's cookbook? Like, go eat some real food. What sh- and, you know, which protein shake should I have, have after my strength and conditioning session? Have the one that's called a chicken breast. <laughs> uh, organic, preferably. 
So as you as you talk about this, I think about the uh, the old Dow Chemicals slogan. Yeah, better, better li- living through chemistry. You got it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, stole that one from you. No, so, <laughs> so right, like I totally get where you're coming from, and I would say that. I mean, I'm definitely guilty of it, but for me, it's not. I definitely don't fool myself into thinking that it's healthy. It's more about convenience and being it, able agreed. to put a, a, bar a in lot your of pocket. something in my pocket yes. that I can eat as I'm going up a hill with one hand on the bars. And, look, you know. Look, and I don't mean to be dogmatic or extreme in my perspective on this. Like, I'm just painting a picture. I'm guilty of it too. You know, I do buy bars, and I'm selective about which ones I buy, and pretty pretty uptight about the ingredients i'm i'm a raging food hippie there's no question about it um i mean my body's a temple (laughs) it's the only one i've got i'm gonna take care of my biological spacesuit while i'm here uh i'd rather spend money now on organic food than pay a doctor or a hospital later that's my perspective on it you're gonna spend the money one spend the money one way or another we all pay for health (laughs) how do you want to pay for it so for those of you who are cringing at the thought of organic spending money on organic food right now that's that's my response to that. But, um, and there's a lot of debate about the nutrition value of organic food and all that nonsense. And man, you just got to give it a microwave argument at some point. What do I mean by that? Okay. This is a great point to a, a general concept. Here's the problem because of the internet, we've got, we've got all kinds of information at our fingertips. We can also get paralyzed and confused because we can find an expert who takes one position on something and then we can find an expert who takes the opposite position on any given topic pretty easily, right? And how do you how do you figure out who's quote right? That's a big challenge in today's era. We have all this information at our disposal, but how do you figure out who knows what they're talking about? I mean, it's one thing to to do research and shift through and find dig through and find who's a charlatan and who's a bullshit artist and but it's another when you find, I mean, you can find plenty of examples of people who are legitimately educated and have been in a certain field for a long time, and they just straight up disagree, straight up headbutting. This is where you have to use a basic principle of discernment, and you have to take the knowledge and turn it into understanding, which is when you use the products yourself and you decide for yourself what works for you. And the beauty in that is that God is a novelty generator. So what works for Dave may not work for Bob or Cynthia or Molly. One man's one man's poison is another man's elixir, right? <laughs> so you what works for you and your diet or your supplements may not work for someone else. And that's proven time and time again. Um train of thought derailed where were we <laughs> <laughs> too many tangents uh, it's good it's good so kind of continuing on that same note um before we started recording we were talking a little bit about this this conflict or this paradox where when you create a product mm. on one hand yes. you might genuinely want to do good and help people but on right. the other hand in order to stay in business, you need to, you sell, to sell products. Yes, right. and so that's always at odds. And so that's I feel like let's yep. let's start with right food. Right, with, great, uh, yeah, great you know, segue. Perf- performance food, right, and then move into some other areas where we see this. Yeah, so great example. Um, I mean, making bars is tricky. I think someone there there are certainly people I've known personally who have gone into the I want to make a bar industry uh, because what's out there isn't necessarily what I want. So they make it for themselves, which I think is an excellent way to start making a product of any kind, whether you're talking about a bar or whether you want to coach someone, right? That's still a product. It's a, ser- a service or product. You're serving someone in either, in either case, you're serving, you're serving another person. And so you say, you look at the world and you look for something and you say, ah, this isn't there. This type of bar isn't there. I want to make a bar that's got this particular ingredient in it, or it doesn't have all these ingredients in it that don't work for me. And so you design this bar, but then you're faced with the reality of, well, I have to sell them. And those are really, in most cases, many cases, they're diametrically opposed uh, goals. Um, because, well, on the one side of, of sales, you have, well, in the, in the case of food, you have to consider things like shelf life and transportability, right? You can't just make a bar out of the perfect organic whatevers 
uh, if it doesn't, if it only sits on a shelf for three minutes, then that doesn't do anybody any good because you can't get them to your customers. So then you start potentially making compromises in the ingredients of the bar in order to add shelf life, whether that's preservatives or changing the ingredient makeup or adding more fillers or more gums or more whatever. And then you, then uh, along with that comes the perception of what the market wants. That's, that can have a powerful impact on changing a product. And unfortunately, that drives sales. But there are confounding variables there because on the one hand, you have the person making the product. And on the other side of the fence, you have the hypothetical consumer. And it may be the perception that the manufacturer has that the consumer wants the product to be a certain way. On the other hand, and so the, so the manufacturer may change the makeup of the product to serve that hypothetical consumer. But maybe that consumer exists or maybe they don't. Or maybe the consumer doesn't know what they want, which is often, most often the case. I think most consumers just buy stuff and they pick from what's there at the store and they buy what they think is the best. Not a lot of consumers necessarily put the time and energy or thought process into, if I were to make this on my own, how would I make it different? Or why doesn't this type of bar exist? The ones who do that end up being manufacturers or product innovators at least. And so, and then on the other side of the equation, you have the consumer that thinks they want a certain type of product or they want a certain feature in a product. A great example of that is rechargeable power meters because it's so inconvenient to send your SRM back to the service center in Colorado Springs or to Germany or to New Zealand to get the battery changed once a year because how can you possibly ride your bike without a power meter for six days, <laughs> right? I'm going to tell you the answer to that. The answer is don't ride your bike for six days or two, or two weeks or three weeks. Don't ride it. It's okay. You'll be okay. Either ride it without a power meter or just don't ride it. Do something else. <laughs> now, granted, that, that timing can be inconvenient. If you don't have your shit together and it happens the week before your goal race, then you're a little bit bummed out. But that's on you because these things happen at pretty regular intervals for the most part. Again, all technology fails us eventually. Every power meter eventually flakes out. It just happens. Some a lot more than others, but right. they all they all eventually flake out. It's part of using technology. It's the relationship we have with complex electronic devices. Accept it. <laughs> just accept it. So anyway, um, we I had a lot of conversations with Uli and some of the other engineers at SRM when I worked there because the consumer demand was consistently that people wanted a rechargeable battery. And for a long time, a couple of the engineers there refused, flat out refused to integrate this technology into the power meter because what people aren't really, this is a great example of the consumer not knowing what they want. You know, you hear lots of stories about power meters that have rechargeable or replaceable batteries. A replaceable is the biggest one because you're, you're okay, it's an electronic device and it needs to be sealed from the elements because guess what? We ride our bikes four seasons. You know, we ride them in the winter, even if we're doing easy miles. That means an electronic device is directly exposed to an environment with moisture and snow and salt and, you know, who knows what else, road grime and probably all kinds of weird petrochemicals on the road. And, and then people are power washing their bikes. And every time you add a battery port, you're adding, you're, you're adding another potential infiltration portal into the electronics of that device, a big one. It's a big one. There's no way to add a, a replaceable battery without compromising the system additionally. And then people have these battery operate, you know, these devices with these little battery, flimsy plastic battery doors, and the doors are breaking off and the seals like a rubber O-ring, which is just, I mean, come on. And then you're people are riding their bikes in the rain and they're wondering why their power meter is freaking out all the time and why they're wrestling with their technology. So. In Uli's case, his goal was to always make the most bomber power meter possible. The trade-off for that is that you have to mail it in every once in a while to have SRM solder in a new battery. And oh, by the way, while you're at it, the service center will recalibrate, truly recalibrate, not zero offset. There's a difference for those of you who are Garmin users and are a little bit confounded about the proper terminology. Pet peeve of mine, sorry. <laughs> Actually recalibrate, which is a factory operation, your power meter to see what the proper zero offset is. And they'll clean it and they'll look after the electronics and check everything else out while they're there. Do all the stuff that you know nothing about most likely and should pay someone else to do. 
Um, and so, but eventually SRM did introduce a rechargeable power meter, which is better than a battery replaceable because the rechargeable with a magnetic port, you can at least minimize the chance of additional contamination from weather and water and elements into the electronics. But that was a huge debate. And and you look at the internet forums, people going on and on about how SRM sucks and how expensive they are and how it's just amazing. The bitch factor is incredible about how, uh, you know, why don't they make a battery replaceable SRM? I can't send mine in. This is terrible. I'm buying a cork or I'm buying a whatever, you know, insert name of other power meter here. And that's great for them. They can go do that. But what they're not seeing is that these people who design these products as a manufacturer or a designer and engineer, you can either choose to basically acquiesce. You can give in to the either perceived or real consumer demands for a particular feature of your product, or you can not. You can make an uncompromising product that you believe and know is best and let the market decide. And there are a handful of manufacturers who make products that way. And when they do, they tend to be really expensive because one of the biggest drivers of sales is cost. And so inherently, whenever you make a product in any given field, doesn't matter whether we're talking about bikes or nutrition or clothing or anything, power meters, when you want to sell a lot of them, you can't have them be really high priced. It just doesn't work that way. And that cost, then when you make that a consideration, then you inherently have to compromise quality somehow. You have to bring costs down. And that either comes at the expense of materials or QC or some other way to cut costs in manufacturing. And then you end up with a product that's lower quality than one that is made with a relentless drive to make the best product possible. So on that note, let's take that over to coaching now. So as somebody who's running a business or trying to run a business, trying to make a profit from Mm -hmm. coaching people. Now you talked about confounding variables. Right. And now you've added this person and and so i want to i want to just give you a quote so i was teaching a class on um at a coaching certification and one of the other instructors stood up and told this room of new coaches Mm. that they were competing for entertainment dollars so think about that for a minute that when you're coaching you're competing for entertainment dollars and at the end of the day those athletes are paying you for entertainment and if they're not having fun they're going to go somewhere else Mm. so as a coach who's trying to make the best product possible but also wanting to stay in business right how do you balance Mm. what the athlete wants versus Mm -hmm. what the athlete needs this is exactly this is exactly what we were just talking about i mean my answer to that is 100 percent no compromise i give the athlete what they need if they don't like it they can go hire another coach (laughs) that's my that's always my goal Um, that said, I should qualify that a bit and expand on it, refine it, because it doesn't mean that I always, that I give my athletes intervals 360 days a year or that every ride is rigid and, and structured. That's not necessarily what I mean. There are plenty of days where I write an athlete a workout and it's very open-ended an unstructured road ride. And I can tell them this could be anywhere from one to five hours in length. I've written this exact workout description ride however long you want to if you want to ride an hour that's okay if you want to go for four hours and hammer your brains out i'm fine with that too (laughs) just understand it's going to impact the next few days of training if you decide to go to one extreme or the other but today is unstructured i want you to drive the ship and do what you want and in that case i think that's what the athlete needs for their program so but that said i would I have to think about it a little more, but right now at this moment, I would fully 100% disagree with that coach who said that they are selling entertainment value. Um, because I'm not Stan Lee and I'm not making an Avengers movie. The Avengers is entertainment. If the athletes want entertainment, they can go watch all the Avengers movies. I what there are like 21 of them now. Those are really entertaining. I've seen most of them. You can watch star Wars. There's a whole series of those. If you want entertainment, there are lots of things you can do for entertainment. You can go watch Game of Thrones. If you want to learn how to achieve flow state on demand and you want to be the best possible human you can be, following the Wu Wei yet at the same time practicing Kaizen 
which is always improving, then that's the coaching philosophy that I would embody and practice on my athletes. That's what my coaching is about. And so this is a perfect segue into wrapping up. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about walking the walk. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really easy to tell your athletes to do these things and to, you know, talk about the holistic athlete or the whole athlete and right. making sure that they're shining and yes. things like that. Yes. But how do you take that to heart right. in your own practice? Well, we're coaches, right? That means we're, we're really instructing people not just we're not just writing workouts for them we're we're giving them advice on how to live their lives i mean let's be realistic anyone who signs up to be a coach they might initially think that they're what they're doing is writing workouts but quickly anyone who's paying attention learns that coaching is much more nuanced and also encompassing than simply writing on the bike workouts you become a therapist you become a life coach to a degree and that's part of the part of the job part of the title and for you to do that with authority or with any level of expertise, you got to have your shit together. I mean, you can only teach someone what you've mastered. You can only bring to the table what you have already accomplished. So how am I going to give someone advice about their relationship with their spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, and how that's influencing their own emotional state and compromising their health if I have my own relationships are wildly unchecked or are very unhealthy? How am I going to give someone advice about diet or nutrition if I eat like crap? How hypocritical would that be? The only way to truly have a real level of understanding, I'm not talking about knowledge. Knowledge is book smarts. Knowledge is very important in a lot of aspects. I'm not talking about experience. Experience is things you have in the past that you've learned firsthand. Understanding is when you bring those two together. It's a personal level of insight into a practice. And understanding is earned through hard lessons, through errors and successes, both. True understanding. And unless you have understanding about a topic probably shouldn't be teaching it to other people, right? So I think it's our onus as coaches. It's really our, it's in our job description to be the best people we can because we are examples for others. I mean, if you have a third grade student and you send them to school and the teacher is a complete shit show, they're smoking cigarettes or they're overweight or they've got serious health problems, doesn't that concern you a bit? Because you know that, okay, we're all ultimately the sum of the five to maybe 10 people we spend the most time with in our lives. Those people have a heavy influence on our psyche and psychology. Well, your third grader is going to spend a lot of time in the next year with their third grade teacher. (laughs) So if your third grade teacher is... I mean, let's just say you're walking to school with your kid and you see the teacher get out of their car and they have a moment of anger and they kick their dog and yell at it. This is a problem, right? (laughs) I mean, you see where I'm going with this. So I think that's our our task as coaches is to master what we bring to the table before we present it to our clients. And... Don't underestimate your responsibility as a coach. It's big. Um, we, we need to step it up. We have to be there to support our clients in, in as many ways as possible. And, and I don't want to dissuade anyone from coaching or make anyone feel less than in the, in the industry of coaching. Um, you know, in this world, it's easy to become paralyzed by information and overwhelmed with the amount of knowledge that we perceive that we must have. What I'm saying is, this is the way I I operate my practice, both as a fitter and as a coach. And um, actually, I'm borrowing this concept from an interview I saw from uh, Ben. I don't recall his last name. He's the guy who runs and builds bikes at Argonaut Cycles. Saw this interview a few years ago, and he had a great answer. The question was, 
what's the next Argonaut road model? You know, your your bike. I don't even know what his model's called. I don't I don't own any of his bikes. Um, but the question was, what's the next one? What's version 2.0? What's next? You know, are you going to go aero tubes? Are you going to do a new bottom bracket style? Or are you going to do this or that? And Ben's response was simple and brilliant. He said, there is no 2.0. Every single frame I make, everyone is the best possible product I can give to my customer at that moment. So if I see a way to make a better frame, as soon as I can figure out how to do it, it goes in the next frame immediately. That's it. And he wasn't talking about prototyping, obviously. He's talking about actionable changes that he's sure will benefit the product and benefit the customer. And that's exactly the way I operate my coaching business and my fitting business. As soon as I figure something out that's better, implementation is immediate. There is no 2.0 because 1.0 is always evolving. It's Kaizen. It's always improving, endlessly improving. And that's, I think, the simple mission that we all must undertake as coaches is to always strive to improve your product, always serve the client in the best possible way. And ultimately, that is your piece of how you make the world a better place simply by sweeping your own doorstep. If you look after your own life, your own health in the best possible way, that's going to radiate positive energy in the world around you and impact everyone else positively, especially those close to you, your family, your friends, and your clients. Make sense? does thank you very much for your time I you're appreciate welcome it. yeah thank you for the opportunity yeah um i'm sure we could have gone on for another hour and um Probably. i'm sure i'll be back and we'll rant on some other things and all right other tangents as well sounds great thanks a lot thank you guys dave here again i hope you enjoyed my talk with colby if you enjoyed the show please be sure to rate it and if you have something you want to hear about or somebody you want me to talk to please leave a comment in the comment section thanks for listening